So hopefully you flipped over there to Acts chapter 19. Uh, we're going to be, like I said, in those verses, Acts 19, 21 to 34. And I was really thinking about what to, what to preach this week because last time I had opportunity to preach here, we taught on something that was kind of heavy. We, we went through some texts that were not so easy to be able to explain, but we did tell you that out of anything that you would hear, and I could still give it to you now so that you would hear it now if you weren't here, there's one singular central point that we want us as a church and for anybody who's going to come in here to hear, and that is this. Jesus Christ has come into the world and He has died and rose again and He actually has ascended to His Father and He sits now and He rules and He reigns. And that beckons upon you then to make a decision today to follow Him in allegiance or to discard Him and to receive your due punishment. It beckons you here today. I want you to know that. That is what we taught that time. Jesus Christ is not an invitational guru coming to you and presenting some really nice, slick, sleek religious option. He beckons everyone in this room allegiance to me. Allegiance, total, final, period, full stop, allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that's all we would ask. That's all we, all we would proclaim. So Jesus Christ came into this world, lived in this world, died in this world, rose again in this world. And because He has rose again, it is vital and incumbent upon you to have to deal with it. It is not if Jesus rose from the dead and reigns now. You do not get to come up to God and to question God. Will the clay say to the one formed by the potter, why have you made me? No, you, my friends, are but clay in the hand of the potter, and you are beckoned to come unto Jesus Christ and owe Him your allegiance. That is what we want at this church to be singularly proclaimed regardless of what we teach. And that's what we taught last time I was here. And I'm going to build off of that today because if you are to give yourself an allegiance to Jesus Christ, you ought to count the cost. You ought to count the cost not simply for what you're going to enter into, but the Jesus whom you're going to follow. Who is He? Where is He leading you? Is it a life full of safety? A life full of comfort? A life full of just sitting back? Or is He a king that you ride out to battle with? Following after Jesus Christ will call for more of you than you ever thought you could think would be called of you. And that's what I want you to hear from this text today. If we are to proclaim Jesus Christ as a risen Messiah, meaning the Savior of the world and the King of the world, then that means something for us if we give our allegiance unto Him. And it means this, that we would go and tell others that they owe their allegiance to Him. 
And that's simple. But it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. But this text today would have us to be resolved in our spirit. That if we are to follow after Jesus Christ, this will be none other than our greatest desire, our greatest joy, and it will be our undying mission. And that's what I want. So I want you to look, flip over to Acts 19. We're going to start in verse 21. I'm going to read through this because this is just narrative. And then we're going to walk through this. So Acts 19, starting at 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only in this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So church, as we read through this text, I want the reality painted for you of what you have entered into. I want you to understand, and, and some of you know in this room, some of you who have been coming here and have given yourself unto Jesus Christ and have gone out and began to do the work of ministry, you've encountered this, what I'm about to say. You go out to somewhere like an abortion clinic. You go out to somewhere like that mill where babies are slaughtered. You go out to somewhere like that and you experience the reality of what Christianity calls you into. In that moment, whatever cultural idea of Christianity you have, it gets demolished. You are now facing in front of you spiritual and demonic forces and powers that apart from Jesus Christ, you would have no weapon formed that could defeat those kind of foes. You would have nothing in your arsenal to be able to go to battle. You would be as a little boy riding out on a pony against an army full of men in a cavalry. You would be demolished and you would be fearful and rightly so. You ever gone up to those pointy black gates to the gates of hell and you thought to overthrow that in your own strength? Let me tell you, church, coming unto Jesus Christ, allegiance to Him, 
has for itself a reality set before us. That as we confess Jesus Christ, we will face the stark reality that we are in war. You have entered yourself into war. You are now engaged in conflict. You are now battling the present evil age as Jesus Christ and His kingdom seeks to come in and devour it. That's the reality. And it's time that we understand this. It's time that as we preach Jesus Christ and following after Him, what you are being then called into is an army. You are being called into as a church to militancy, to stand up straight, to go out for Jesus Christ. And you are going into waged warfare. Christianity is not a soft religion. It is not a religion for women and for boys. It is a religion for men to lead and for women, real women, to follow in line and to be ready to give it all to Jesus Christ. This is not a joke. If you understand the enemy, if you understand the warfare, if you understand the reality because your eyes have been opened to the truth, then this text will land upon you with great joy. And brethren, what I want us to be able to work from and to is we have been brought into this new kingdom. We have been brought unto Jesus Christ. And now, church, we are in the throes of warfare. We are at the gates of hell, ready to storm. And you better be ready for what is to come because it is not a game. This is not, this is not playing church. We're not coming here to just talk about our personal beliefs on Sundays and go home. And then Monday through Saturday, it's as if Christianity means zip nada to you. It's either all or everything. It's either total allegiance to Jesus Christ or it's absolutely nothing. And we got to understand that what we will be able to do as we enter into this warfare is one thing and one thing only, and that is proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. If you would seek to fall in line under King Jesus and you are to conquer, it will not be because you can work hard enough. It will not be because you're tough enough. It will be It'll be for the sole reason that you will proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I have entitled this message, you will provoke idolaters in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. Because that's what we see in the text here before us. That as we go out, church, as we proclaim to be under Jesus Christ's lordship, we proclaim Him to be this great king. Well, what does a king go and do? He sends his subjects to go out into the lands and say, listen, the king rules and reigns. You owe allegiance to Him. Either give the allegiance to Him, or He's coming with the sword. And what does that do to the people? Do they usually in the village go, you know what, that sounds like the guy I need to follow. No. You are now provoking them. You are saying, your king, your rulers, your standards are nothing. They're gone. Cast them off. Cast off your old king. Cast off your old rules. Cast off your old customs. You are now in the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And you are provoking those who do not follow Him, who do not love Him, and who do not seek to honor Him, to say, honor Him! And you will provoke them. 
Church, we are entering into that. We are entering into proclaiming Jesus Christ and in doing so, provoking idolaters. Not because we are offensive, but because proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord means something. It means something. So look with me in, this, in Acts 19 right here. This for us will be a fully colored picture of what I have just said. Of what we are calling us as the church and what everyone in this room is being called to account for. That Jesus Christ is being proclaimed right now as Lord over you and you will either submit or you will perish. Those are the two options. There are no other options in this room. And you are called upon it today. So I don't want any confusion. Don't want any confusion as what is being said. And Paul right here in Acts 19, as his ministry is being described, will leave us in no uncertain terms, will leave us with no confusion as to what is said and what the result's going to be, and then it beckons upon you as a people to make a choice. So I want you to pause. I want you to think about that claim. I want you to think about what's being said here. I want you to actually consider these words. I want you to think for once and be able to think, what in life is important? What in life is real? And most importantly, what in life is true? Because you would be the fool who ends up dying standing before God. Jesus Christ was presented before you as King and Lord over you, and you gave Him zero thought all the good news that is going to come to you and come to us as a church that we will be accountable for and to leave here and to give it no thought will be to our own damnation if we do not come on to Jesus Christ. And church, if we do not think about this as a church, it will be to our own shame when the Master comes calling for us. We need to pause. We need to think. And I beckon you, some of you in here are young. Think not only of your life to come, but what you are doing standing before God, standing before Jesus Christ. And pause. Give it attention and think. What does Jesus Christ beckon of me? And you will know that it is nothing but allegiance to Him. So look at that first couple verses there in Acts 19, verse 21. And I'm, I'm going to stop halfway in one verse, which I almost never do. I'm not that kind of preacher. Look, 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit. Paul is resolved here. And we read this story already. You know what he's resolved in doing, and we know what the charge is in verse 26. Look down to 26. This Demetrius, this idolater, this pagan who makes idols. He literally makes silver idols that go into these false pagan temples. And he says this, talking to the crowds, the men he's gathered. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. And what's Paul saying? What has he resolved in the Spirit to do? That these gods, that these people worship, they're made with hands, human hands, and are not gods. Church, Paul is resolved in his Spirit 
that as he recognizes and looks upon the fact that Jesus is the Christ, as was read in Acts 17, what's he proclaiming in the synagogues? What's he going into the city squares and proclaiming there? Jesus is a really nice Savior. You should try to accept Him and maybe your life gets better. No! He says, Jesus Christ is Lord. And people know exactly what He means. He's Lord. You hear the... Let's pull these guys in front of the authorities. They're saying against what Caesar claims for himself. Caesar says He's Lord. And these men are proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord. It sends them into a fit of rage. They drag these men before city councils and say what? They're turning the world upside down. That's no small thing, church. That's no small thing that someone gets proclaimed as Lord and the people who hear it, it's as if their entire world is being shaken in front of them. I mean, I want you to imagine. Forget that the... the the leader of North Korea might be dying or is dead. Imagine if what you heard on the news instead is he's coming over here, they're flying and coming in ships over to America, and they are about to overturn your government. They are about to flip on its head your way of life. And you, my friend, are going to have to defend yourself. Your world would be upside down and you would be in a panic. And them hearing Jesus Christ is Lord is that. This Jesus is Lord? You're saying He has rule and authority over us? And they go berserk. Because they understand the claims. It's not Jesus is a nice guy. It's not Jesus is just a loving guy. Jesus rules as a king, brethren. He rules as a king. And He demands allegiance. He demands it. And those who hear the words rightly, they understand what the call is. And that means you ought to understand the call rightly. When you hear Jesus Christ as Lord, that ought to turn your world upside down. Because He's not calling you to consider Him. In church, He's not calling us to maybe consider obeying Him. He's saying, this is your Lord. This is the one whom creation was made for. This is the one in whom everything centers upon. And you would be a fool to treat him any less. I don't know how you would treat an official who walked in here. And I could really care less if you like the president or don't. But one thing you would do is if he came in through the room right now and a bunch of dudes came in who looked dressed up like they could kill you in five seconds, you would stand to attention at least because of the presence that just entered the room. You know, you may not like him, but out of due respect and honor, you would stand and you would be at attention and you would think less of Jesus Christ and you would be a fool. Donald Trump is a wicked man and Jesus Christ is a ruling king, a perfect man, a perfect God man. And you to not consider him like that, for you did not understand his worthiness, his value and his rulership over you. I don't know how to put it in any other words. To not consider Him for all that He's worth. You would be a fool. So church, we need to be like Paul. We need to be so resolved in our spirit. So resolved for the Lordship of Jesus Christ that as we go 
from here to there, from here to there. I mean, think about what it says from Paul just in these two chapters. Now, after these events, Paul resolves. And when the town clerk had said this, Paul goes on here. And then after going ahead on a ship, Paul's setting sail to go here. Why? He's resolved in his spirit that Jesus Christ means everything. That his lordship beckons upon his life that he must go and proclaim it. That he must do something about it. That if Jesus Christ really does reign church we would not sit here and tell people that's true and then do nothing about it. And I think the reason that we are not resolved in our spirit is because we do not believe him. We don't believe Him. We talk about it. We make much about it in our speech. We praise missionaries who go and do it. We subscribe to the monthly magazine about missionaries on the field and we have not labored one minute for it. And I'm telling you, that is just as vile and wicked as if you are the worst rebel against Jesus Christ and you were standing outside of this house right now with a sign that says, I hate Jesus Christ. It's the same unto Him. Indifference to His message, indifference to His Lordship is hatred for Him. You don't get to make that choice. You don't get to come in and barter with the King. You're His subject. He is the King. You obey. You listen. So church, I think we are not resolved in this, in our spirits, because we don't believe Him at His word, and we don't understand the task laid before us. I will confess to you that I'd love to talk about this subject more than anybody in this room, and I must confess that I... I struggle with unbelief and thinking this task is going to be accomplished. That the world is going to experience the proclamation and the salvation of Jesus Christ. And I don't give myself unto the task because I don't understand the task. I don't believe in it. I don't know how it's going to be laid out. And I struggle. And he just says, no, forget that. Be resolved in your spirit that he reigns and then go. Leave the rest up to him. What did Paul encounter Nothing but beautiful, you know, fruit from his ministry. It was often hardship. It was often trouble. It was often beatings. It was often scourgings. It was often being slandered by his countrymen. And it was often being thought of as a fool to the rest of the world. But after these events, all this stuff Paul has done for the gospel, he's resolved in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit laid upon him as he had believed the gospel is pushing him and driving him and setting his face towards Jesus Christ and his rule and his reign. He's resolved in his spirit because he believes him at his word and he understands the task. Church, we need to be resolved in this. We need to be resolved in this. We need to pray for the Spirit to make us resolved in this. We, this is not a grit your teeth and pull yourself up religion. This is a desperate pleading with God that if He would not resolve us by His Spirit, we would remain 
ineffective. We would remain lethargic and we would remain a church who does not confess rightly that Jesus is Lord now. You must be resolved in spirit. And here is why, church, here is why. It is not simply for our sake. It's not simply for us to have a name for ourselves. Like we're, we're just a great church that loves to go out. We're the hip church that goes out here and, and does this ministry and does that ministry. No. Look at 23. Look at 23 as to why we must be resolved in spirit. And it's because we must be about the business of provoking people in their idolatry. Not to stir them to anger, but to stir them towards Jesus Christ. Look at 23. About that time. So, Paul coming into Ephesus. This is somewhere around his third missionary journey. And he is pressing forward now to the end of his life. He knows where he's going. He's resolved in the Spirit to do these things. And so it says that about that time, there arose, and hear the way this is described, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now you may think that the writers of the Bible were idiots, but I'm telling you now, they're much smarter than any of us in this room. Luke is intentionally drawing you to a very awkward phrase and it gets translated awkwardly. But the point of it is to draw your attention to this. What was the nature of the disturbance? Was it simply some people were bothered because the man was sharing his religious convictions with other people? Was it simply because he hurt some people's feelings by saying, Hey, guess what? I think you should really like say sorry for the things you've done wrong against God for. And maybe you could accept Him and be forgiven. It says there was no little disturbance Disturbance concerning the way. What way? The way of Jesus Christ. The way that if you read earlier in Acts, these Christians get labeled as people who are followers of what? The way. And how do they get labeled as followers of the way? They go out and proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Suffering and persecution rush upon the church. But then what happens? Do they get squashed out? Do they get beaten and thrown out of the city? What does it say? The constant refrain in the book of Acts when they go out and do that. And many were added day by day to their numbers. Over and over and over and over again. So here comes Paul, this troublemaker, this rebel rouser. And what is he doing? Is he, is he causing revolutions? Is he going up and breaking down buildings? No. He's proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And it says that there arose no little disturbance concerning this way. The way of Jesus Christ. The way of the King. And then notice who gets provoked. Notice what the result is here. Look at 24. For, so here's the explanation of this no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought, and notice the phrase again. Notice, notice the contrast here. That Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Ar Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. No little business. No little provocation. No little disturbance. 
no little business. So you can imagine what's being set up for you right now. What was this no little disturbance concerning the way? What made it so that in 33, a crowd is prompted to bring these men and drag them before city officials? And it's this. 25. These, speaking of all these businessmen and their craftsmen, this no little business, he gathers them together with the workmen in similar trades and says, Men, you know that from this business... It's no little business. We have our wealth. What's being provoked here, church? As Jesus Christ is proclaimed as Lord, what is being prodded by the gospel of Jesus being proclaimed as Lord? People's idolatry. People's idols. Demetrius the silversmith stands as a representation of a real man, nonetheless, but also a representation of human beings and their idolatry. When Jesus Christ is proclaimed as Lord, it prods and pokes their little idols. Or to put it Luke's way, they're no little idols. They're big idols. And why are they big? That's where our wealth comes from. Our livelihood comes from. Our life comes from. This gospel comes and Jesus Christ confronts these false gods of safety and security and ease. I want you to notice this. It's a kind of an interesting play on this too. So this man named Demetrius, a silversmith, talking about this no little business of these craftsmen and making silver shrines. Who are the shrines to? They're to Artemis. Well, Artemis is a Greek god. And Artemis is drawn from Artemis, which means safety and comfort, or safety and soundness, or safety and security. <laughs> you notice the irony in that? Here comes the gospel of Jesus Christ from these people. And he says, Jesus Christ is Lord. And what's going on? People's idolatry is confronted and they repent. So now what are they not doing? They're not buying the old temple idols. They're not coming and paying homage to these gods anymore. They're not coming to Demetrius's no little business and his craftsmen and buying their fake gods and their false gods, which means Demetrius's no little business is getting cut, and so his no little prophet is now becoming a little prophet. It's attacking his idol. And his biggest idol is not this fake god Artemis. It's his love of money. It is his hope in his love of his money, of in his wealth, of his comfort, in his safety, of his Artemis, his safety, his soundness, his security in his idol making. I want you to hear that. It's as if Artemis is standing enshrined in this Ephesian temple and Jesus Christ is proclaimed and he gets booted right off of his throne. And what does Artemis do? Does he stand up and does he oppose him? No, he's a shrine. He's made by human hands. 
Artemis has no answer to Jesus Christ, and people recognize Artemis to be a false god, and these men know it to be true too. They are simply concerned with the fact that this is stealing from their livelihood, from their wealth. Brothers, what is their reaction? It is nothing but uproar. These men's worlds, think about what I said earlier, these men's worlds, their livelihoods, literally in a day's flipped upside down. I mean, you could imagine this now. Some of you are out of work. I'm sure some of you panicked when you lost your job too. Would you not describe that panic as your world being flipped upside? If I lost my job right now, I'd be hurting pretty bad. My world would feel flipped upside down. I mean, imagine you're the pagan Demetrius. Your livelihood. You're feeding all of your pagan kids and your pagan wife and all these people. And everyone depends upon you being this silversmith and all of your workers. And then this guy comes proclaiming Jesus Christ. And they're like, you know what? Buying silver shrines and worshiping them in this idol is foolishness. It's idolatry. And we repent of that. And we will not buy that foolishness anymore. And now what are you going to do? Your no little business is now becoming little and your wealth is about to become nothing and your life is about to be flipped upside down because of the proclamation of this Jesus as Lord. So church, I want us to understand when we leave from here, it doesn't matter where we go. It doesn't matter if we're going to the abortion clinic. It doesn't matter if we're going to go door knocking and preach the gospel to people. It doesn't matter if we send people out of here to a third world country where the gospel has never been. We're not going to preach a small message. We are preaching no little gospel. We are preaching no little thing to people. Jesus Christ comes in as Lord and it causes and it tells everyone to renounce everything in their life. And it will provoke idolatry in men and women's hearts. And they will seek your life. They will seek your comfort. They will seek your livelihood. They will seek to turn your world upside down. Jesus Christ is not safe, brothers. You know, I was reading this and I was reminded, you probably have read this. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this is like one of the line of all lines, right? And if you remember when Susan is talking to Mr. Beaver and asking about Aslan the King, I mean, you got to know this. this is a, if you haven't seen this, even uh, forget seeing it. Go read it. Don't be a fool and watch the movie. Go read the book. And you hear her asking, inquiring about that, because she's super uncertain who this king is, this Aslan. And hear what it says. Gets a description from Mr. Beaver. Aslan is a lion. And Susan goes, Aslan is a lion? The lion? The great lion? Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mr. Beaver replies, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
You see, friends, I'm not calling us to go provoke the idolatry of men because Jesus Christ be a stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-nosed king. He is good. And if you don't believe that, you are the fool and not Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, Jesus Christ and His goodness will have nothing to do with His name being shamed and His value not being prized and His worth not being exalted. He won't have it. And that is in the gospel, friends. That is what we must go out and do. We must proclaim, as Paul did, that these gods made by human hands and for us and for you sitting here made by human hearts... The Bible goes on to say, look, you may not be crafting silver shrines to Artemis, but if you covet in your heart what you all have, you are an idolater. You are Demetrius in the flesh. And I tell you what, you have created more idols in your heart than Demetrius ever crafted with a hammer. You have loved the things God does not love. And you have despised the things that God says He does love. And the thing He loves the most is Jesus Christ. And if you hear about Him right now, this Jesus who is Lord over you, and you reject that, you are despising Jesus Christ. And church, we have to know that is what we're going into. That is the call of the kingdom. That is the gospel call. But it is a call that if we would be resolved in our spirits to do, regardless of the danger, regardless of the idolater's reaction, we would find Jesus Christ to be a much greater king than Aslan was or ever will be. He's good. And that's why Paul goes in and does this. And that's why these men recognize the claim of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ comes in. These men cast down their idols. And these idolaters understand. They say, look, look at 25. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. They're attacking the principles upon which our lives stand. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul, this one man has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come in disrepute, and here comes the religious masking with the rest of this, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship friends when idolaters are called out for their idolatry they will have every excuse and religious excuse in the book as to why they think they ought to remain in their idolatry. And they will even use God to excuse themselves. The gospel does not simply come in and demand that people check their ethics of how they make their money or how they live. It fundamentally calls them to account for their allegiance to a God that they do serve. You see, you're made as an image bearer of God, which means if you don't worship Jesus Christ, you're going to end up worshiping something. 
No one in here is non-religious. Everybody has given their life and their allegiance over to some God. Now, you may not be Demetrius, but you may have crafted an image, an idol in your life that is you, and you serve you, and you serve your ends, and you serve your purposes. And Jesus Christ comes in and He says, yeah, you live as if you're, own, you're your own standard, but at the heart of it, it's because you worship yourself. Your allegiance is to yourself. You have put yourself in the place of God, the sin of your first parents in the garden, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, because you thought yourself to be wise, and you thought yourself to be like God. And when Jesus Christ gets proclaimed as Lord, what does He say to you? You're not. You're not. And you have no standing before Him. And you have no excuse before Him. And you do not get to proclaim back to Jesus Christ that He obey you and listen to you. No, no, no. Friends, Jesus Christ made you. You are the creature. Not the other way around. And if your God is a created thing, then we know who the real God is. It's you. It doesn't matter what spin you put on it. It doesn't matter what you entrap it in. It's you. And you ought to repent at hearing Jesus Christ is Lord and He rules and He reigns. Because the goodness from hearing that, friends, is that you can be freed from that idolatry. And church, that is what we are proclaiming as we provoke idolaters. We want them to see the foolishness of their idolatry. The same thing if you walked into this, this New Testament setting and you saw these Ephesians walking to a temple, bowing down to human-made shrines, you would scoff at them, you would laugh at them, you would think them to be primitive. And yet Jesus Christ, when He looks at us, sees nothing different. You may not have carved it, you may not have shaped it, you may not have molded it with your hands, but your heart sure has, and your heart is covered in it, and it looks just as foolish. And it is, friends. He wants you to see the foolishness of your idolatry so that you would see the goodness of Him as Lord. That you would see the goodness of Him as King, and you would see what He holds out to you. But notice what these men see. They see nothing but an attack upon their livelihood, upon their God, and upon whom they take stand for. And as we read in Acts 17, it gets charged to them that these men are turning the world upside down. They're defying the decrees of the king of Caesar. That is true biblical provocation. Church, that is a true gospel going forth. That is what we need to be doing and resolved in our spirits to do. If we have entered into this kingdom, if we have come unto Jesus Christ, then our resolution should be to proclaim a message and a king that provokes people and turns their world upside down. Why do you think the American church gets along so well with America? 
Why do you think after watching the video of North Korea, of all different things, or of China, when Christians say the word Jesus, their leaders repulse and they throw them in, in prison and they, and they kill them and they torture them and they persecute them. It's because they say, Jesus is Lord. And these men tout themselves as lords and they know in their hearts that they're not. And you do too. You know Jesus Christ is Lord. You know how Jesus Christ has convinced everyone in this room that He's Lord? He's raised from the dead. It's a fact. It's reality. And so when men hear the gospel proclaimed, they think, I want nothing to do with that Lord because I'm my Lord. I don't want anything to do with that Jesus. I don't want anything to do with a guy who stands reigning and ruling over me. And so, church, that's why we must have the provocation. Because if we have a gospel that does not provoke men, not because we're jerks, not because we go out with signs of turn, burn, turn, burn, turn, burn, and you never actually get to Jesus, who's the heart of the gospel, but you simply proclaim Him as Lord. Church, if we don't have a gospel where men are provoked by Jesus Christ being proclaimed as their rightful ruler, we do not have a gospel worth sharing. And the church has settled for giving people a Jesus whom they can try, a Jesus whom they can simply Sunday's a great day to consider Him, but nothing else. A Jesus whom, when it's called for obedience, they squirm. They think it would be just so legalistic and just, and just so bound up by rules that Jesus would call them to do something. And friends, it's because they do not want Jesus as Lord. What was the psalm that we read from the Old Testament reading? What happens when the nations are proclaimed to that God has set His anointed King Jesus upon the throne? They rage. And what do they want cast off of them? His teaching. Cast the cords of this man's law off of us. We want nothing to do with the decrees of that King. That's why we must provoke it, friends. That's why we must proclaim this gospel. That's why we must poke at the idols that men hide in their hearts. And it's why men ought to be provoked by saying, Listen, kiss the Son. Today you can come unto the Son, but if you hear His commands and you hear the fact that He asks for obedience from His people and you don't want that, but you're okay with a little bit of Jesus Christ, then He will not be satisfying to you. You will not be blessed. You will not, be find, you will not find refuge in Him. You will find Him to be nothing but a simple idol to be cast off in your mind and for you to proclaim yourself as Lord. Or, you may think yourself to be religious. You may think yourself to be a Christian and the same thing comes. Jesus Christ gets proclaimed to His church as Lord and then the church looks at Him and goes, yeah, yeah, that looks great on paper, but we don't really want any of that in our church. Calling people to obedience legalism, calling people to go out and proclaim the gospel, that's asking them too much. And Jesus Christ says, these religious men walking around, the Jews at the time thinking they're God's people, 
And God displays to them that what they really follow is not the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't follow the God that they claim to believe in. Who do they appeal to? Caesar. And what do Christians do when they hear of the Lordship of Jesus Christ proclaimed over those lives and they don't obey? What do they appeal to? Themselves. They're Caesar. This Jesus is defying the decree of Caesar. They're defying my decree of what I think I can look like, what I think I can live like, what I think I can get away with. And Jesus would say, not having any of it. Brothers, you either take Him as King and Lord, you take Him as nothing. So what must be the call to us then? What must be the call to us as we read this, as we read all throughout the book of Acts, as they go from town to town, city to city, proclaiming this gospel, people are being added to them day by day. Or as it says here, now all of them were sharing this good news. And what does it say? The gospel continued to go forth and to spread and to spread and to spread. Here's our application. We must continue the advance. We must continue the advance, church. The church has been advancing against the gates of hell for 2,000 years and must continue to do so. And the reason you would is because you know the outcome. If you believe the outcome that Jesus Christ will rule over the nations, that He asked His Father, Give them to me. And the Father is going to say, Yes! Here's the reward for your suffering. They're yours. You know the outcome. So why would we not continue in the advance of this gospel? Why would we, why would we even think of remaining talking about it in here and do nothing? We know this outcome, church. So when you're going out there and you're trembling at speaking to the woman who wants to slaughter her baby, or you're speaking to the family member who sits two feet across from you, proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Run into battle because you know the outcome. Trust Him. We must continue to do this. We must be resolved to do this or our confession of Jesus as Lord means nothing. He has the rights. He earned it with His sufferings. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's His. He is the rightful heir of it, the ruler of it, the embracer of it. It's as if you were to go on to do a job, you would have the right to what you have earned, and Jesus Christ has every greater right than you to get what He has earned, and that is the salvation of the world. He came to seek and to save the world, brethren. He came to seek that His Father's glory would be spread across the face of the earth because He is the rightful heir of it. We must continue in the advance. We must hold the line. And the reason we must do it is this. We also need to be convinced that it's real. Is it not real when you're standing at the abortion clinic and there are babies being slaughtered? They're dead. Dead. And we're not proclaiming to them our personal beliefs. We're proclaiming to them the reality of the battle that we're waging and it ought to wear at you. It ought to grind you. 
You ought to not come away from those things weary and heavy and thinking, Jesus, we need you to comfort us in this. We are running into headlong into battle. Ride out with us. Nourish us in this battle. It's all too real. Or do we not know it to be real, brethren? Do we think we can continue playing the game of Christianity and never to seek from the King who rides out with us that, Lord, you must ride before us and you must, can, you must keep us because this battle is all too real. And if we would do so, then we know that that rider goes out conquering. Jesus does not fail in His conquering. As it says in Psalm 110, He lifts up His head from the brook, by the way, because He will not stop until He's conquered. And if you believe that, and the battle be real, church, we'll continue the advance. Though it be hard, though it demand everything from us, we will continue it because the battle is real and we know that the idolaters before us, the idolatry that we had in our own hearts, the consequences of idolatry is real. The consequences of men storing up for themselves wrath is real of men who love evil and hate the light is real. We know the consequences. In church, we've been tasked with the duty. We've been tasked with it. Jesus Christ has guaranteed it. It's already been given to Him. It's already been His. But He says, church, go out and conquer by giving your life away for this. And then do you not hear what Jesus says when He says, if you were to give your life for His sake and the Gospel's sake, though you lose it all now, you would gain it all in the end. Church, we've been tasked with this. And just like Demetrius and those pagans who had temples in the land, there are still unrighteous, wicked spots remaining in the land where idolatry is not only hidden in the hearts of men, but it is celebrated. And we ought not be okay with that. We ought not be okay that there is an abortion uh, mill several blocks down the street and that it remains in the land. We ought not be okay with it. We ought not be okay that there are pagan and idolatrous temples in this town. Oh, to different gods that claim the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, that claim to know Him, and yet they don't. That claim to worship so-called gods, and they stand in the land, and we ought not be okay with that. We ought not be okay that worship of the true and living God of Jesus Christ does not exist across the face of the earth. Church, we ought not to be okay with that. I want you to be convinced that if you come into that, then you want that for others. And what greater love is it to lay your life down for the sake of others? So church, will we be resolved? Will it be written of us that we were resolved in spirit to go out into Las Vegas and to proclaim Jesus as Lord and to see the world turned upside down? Let's pray.